call me Ishmael. I can call you Betty. And Betty, when you call me, you can call me uh, You can call me. Um, okay, then call me Betty. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. I'm not actually Al, I'm actually Jonas. And my name is neither Betty nor Ishmael. I'm Christian. Hi. This episode's book was actually suggested by a listener, Kate, and she said we should read Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Moby Dick is certainly considered to be one of the great classics of American literature. However, the plot itself can be described in one sentence, a whale hunt. The narrator of the book, who wants to be called Ishmael, starts off by describing how he got to be part of that whale hunt. He was on the whaling island of Nantucket and became a crew member on the Pequod, a whaling ship, together with the Polynesian harpooner Queequeg. The Pequod was home to a colorful cast of different crew members, but none of them are as colorful, maybe, as the captain, Captain Ahab, who has only one aim in life, revenge. Ahab's leg was bitten off by a mythical creature almost, a great white sperm whale the whalers call Moby Dick. And Ahab is obsessed with the idea of finally killing Moby Dick and get revenge for that mutilation. This also means that the trip on the Pequod is not a pleasant one. The whaling, the hunting and killing of the whales goes rather well, but the Meetings with other ships show that Ahab is burning with the idea of finding Moby Dick and doesn't care about other people and especially not about his crew. Finally, the Pequot manages to hunt down the whale and all ends in disaster. Ahab is killed, dragged down into the ocean by the white whale and Moby Dick also destroys the Pequot, killing everyone on board except for Ishmael, who, ironically, can hold on to the casket that Queequeg had commissioned when he was ill and was afraid of dying on the sea. So Ishmael is the sole survivor and can tell us the story of Moby Dick. While today the book is considered a classic, and it is often assigned in high schools and in college in the US and around the world, really, it didn't start out that way. Melville was never a very successful writer, financially, the book was first published in London, and then a couple of months later in the US. In London, it was actually called The Whale, and then by the time it went over to America, Melville changed his mind and decided to call it Moby Dick instead. It met with moderate interest, and in fact, Melville died without seeing the great success of his work. It was only in the early 20th century, really, in the 1910s and 20s, that interest in Moby Dick and Melville himself was rekindled and that it became this great classic, one of the candidates of the elusive great American novel, which in some ways this search for the great American novel, which is a very, very stupid obsession. You could say that's a bit like Ahab's obsession with the white whale itself. People are so focused on finding this great American novel, which they are sure must be somewhere, and there are tales of it. But nobody really knows what it is and where it is exactly, except that it doesn't kill as many people as the white whale did. 
Well, you never know how many writers died in the pursuit of this mythical creature. But you're right. This idea of the great American novel seems to link to a certain obsession. And this idea of this obsession also might be the one thing that has made Moby Dick such a successful book and such an American classic. Because you might see it as this kind of personification of manifest destiny, of the American dream of following your idea to the very end with a single-mindedness that borders on obsession in the best of cases and might become this very murderous and cruel thing in the worst case, as with Ahab. It is also very typically American in other ways and... Without meaning to be insulting to our American listeners and to my American friends, but Ishmael is kind of dumb. But he's an autodidact. He's an enthusiastic reader. Sometimes the things he extrapolates from his reading are not technically correct, you would say, even at the time. But he is very enthusiastic. And so he's very typical, I would say, of a certain kind of puppy-dog-eyed American idealism of the early time of the country in the late 18th, early 19th century, where people really believed in becoming self-made men, such as Ishmael is to an extent. At the same time, I always liked the American literary tradition exactly for this self-consciousness that they were looking for maybe the great American novel, but they were also aware of their limitations. And I think Moby Dick is also an example for this kind of darker strand of American literature that started off with people like Charles Brockton Brown and later Nathaniel Hawthorne, who looked at the ideas of this new country, the ideas of becoming a new nation, of fighting against nature and gaining new land and so on. And with Hawthorne, for example, the description of colonial New England has a very dark side to it. And the same with Melville, this notion of nature as something that cannot be fought, that cannot be tamed, and that despite all the puppy-eyed enthusiasm, the best thing Ishmael can do is survive. The best thing anyone can do, really. The novel is chock-a-block full of symbols, of course, Moby Dick being chief amongst them. Uh, the whale himself has been read as a symbol for countless things, but one of the things that it fairly obviously represents to me is this world that humanity has to deal with, and the struggle against the whale and Ahab's obsession with it could be seen as representing the obsession of the people to make sense of this world, of dealing with it, and their inability to do so. That is certainly the chief interpretation. And in that sense, I think Melville shows that, yeah, there is a certain futility to it. That in the end, yeah, the best they can do is survive. And most of them don't. And Ahab's obsession is certainly also not seen as something positive, something that you should actually strive for. He might have some qualities. He's certainly charismatic. He's certainly a kind of born leader a lone wolf character that American culture seems to love. But Ahab is, at the same time, something of a villain of this book. And certainly um, this hunt, this obsession, are seen as, yeah, something horrible in itself. Not just because it's futile, but also because it 
drag so many other people into the catastrophe as well. Could we consider Ahab a kind of gothic character? And I'm asking you as the expert for gothicness, of course. Certainly. I mean, gothic characters, whether they be gothic villains or the Byronic heroes of the more heroic variety, they are mainly characterized by their limitlessness. They transgress all boundaries. And that is a description that fits Ahab perfectly. He has also the physical features mutilation that shows that there is something also character-wise wrong with him. But at the same time, yeah, the charisma, the kind of leadership qualities, that he is at the same time better than most men, but also beyond the moral rules of society and therefore, yeah, a gothic villain. But generally, there are also a lot of very gothic moods in the novel. For example, when the Pequod sets out for its journey... There are mysterious things going on. They hear mysterious noises. They think that maybe there are more people on the ship than they know. And then when they chase the first whale, there is actually an extra set of people to go into one of the whaling boats. People that Ahab smuggled onto board and they are described as very exotic. Their leader is a Persian man dressed all in black, wearing a turban of his own hair, and he's a fire worshipper. This is a very gothic beginning. And also Ahab has this dark secret that he actually doesn't tell the others about, that he is obsessed with this white whale. And then also towards the end, as they are actually approaching the whale, and Ahab grows restless, and the entire ship is in silence, and he paces the deck ceaselessly, and the only sound is really the sound of his uh, leg and his uh, wooden leg, and of Pip, the cabin boy, who has gone crazy, uh, shouting ramblings. And that is such a very eerie and gothic and uncanny mood that is really effective at sending a shudder down your spine. That is true. Um, I have a confession to make. It's been a very long time since I read Moby Dick, and I didn't have the time to reread it, so shame on me. But I think... That is actually not the worst perspective because the book, I think, lives to a large degree from these set pieces, from these images that Melville manages to portray and the mood he brings across. And you mentioned, I think, Thedala is his name, the mm. uh, Parsi, who also makes a prophecy that actually comes true in the end when Ahab is killed by Moby Dick. So there is this mysterious element. Another scene that always will be in my mind is the first meeting of Ishmael with Queequeg because Ishmael is in a hostel on Nantucket and in the middle of the night this tall tattooed exotic stranger comes into his room with his giant harpoon and lies in bed with him because there is no other room and no other space for him to sleep in and for me this description was always very very effective and it evocative as well. Actually, there it's really interesting that they creep each other out. So Ishmael is already in bed, and then Queequeg comes in, but Queequeg doesn't see him. And then Ishmael is so scared by this apparition of this savage, as he calls him, that he cannot move. He cannot do anything. And so he doesn't. And it's only when Queequeg actually gets into bed that he realizes that there's another guy. And he shouts, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, who are you, what are you? 
And it's this really interesting case where Ishmael is really scared, but Queequeg is also really scared. So everyone is basically really scared, even though there are harmless explanations. Yes, and that's an interesting factor, actually, that this mysterious notion and the exotic characters, I mean, all of the Harpeneers are described in much detail. One is a Native American, one is an African, and Queequeg from Polynesia. But they are just as much part of the crew as all the other characters. And Queequeg and Ishmael become friends, the closest of friends you can have, basically, on the ship. And that shows that despite this idea of, oh, there are these mysterious characters and there's strange things going on, there's still a sense of normalcy that the people on the ship still strive to have a normal life. And that can be read symbolically, of course, as well. That even in the face of danger, in the, in the face of obsession and things larger than life, you can still find something like friendship and a normal existence. It is very interesting that this book is so diverse. Native Americans, uh, people from Persia, Africa, Polynesia. This was written in the 19th century. But it acknowledges this reality of racial diversity on whaling ships. And while it is true that most of the non-white characters are still in subservient roles, I think they are more than just stock characters. Uh, for example, Queequeg is more than just a noble savage. Uh, he is a complex person who has dreams, who has fears, who has his own kind of religion. All the Harpeneers follow different religions. And it is very complexly drawn, this picture of this international, multi-ethnic crew, really. I haven't seen any of the film adaptations of Moby Dick, but I would be surprised if that ethnic diversity had been present on screen. I think it is represented, especially, of course, because despite their role in the cast, uh, the foreign characters, so to say, are, of course, perfectly colourful. So showing Queequeg on screen with the tattoos is too good a chance to miss. But, but, I, but I wonder if he was actually played by a Polynesian actor or if they had a white guy sort of darken up and draw some funny tattoos on him. Probably, yes. Especially in the 50s version. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, that brings up an interesting point that this society on board or in general, this community of the whalers is shown to be a kind of microcosm that... They have their very distinct rules. When the ships meet, the captains are supposed to have a kind of meet-up on one ship and the first mates on the other. And it shows that these people, especially because they are alone for such a long time on the ocean for months and years, they are very much in need of contact, of society, of community. And that I've always found interesting, that you have this kind of alternate society far, far away from civilization, but still trying to keep civilization intact, even in the wilderness of the ocean. Speaking of this need of connection, this need of kinship on the oceans, I think there's a big gay elephant in the room. Of course, ships are homosocial spaces, so at that time at least all the crew members were men. And of course, things happen on ships. Uh, as people said jokingly, oh, worst things happen at sea, considering these things bad. And there is a lot of that in Moby Dick. It is such a gay book. For example, before Ishmael knows Iquiquid, he already knows that he will have to share a bed with him. The more I pondered over this harponier, the more I abominated the thought of sleeping with him. 
than when Creekwick gets into bed with him. I sang out. I could not help it now. And giving a sudden grunt of astonishment, he began feeling me. Then, of course, they are hunting sperm whales, who have a special oil in their heads called spermaceti, and there's a lot of discussion of sperm. No wonder that in old times this sperm was such a favorite cosmetic, such a clearer, such a sweetener, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. And knowing that molly was slang for homosexual men only intensifies this, especially in this chapter called A Squeeze of the Hand. It is about them squeezing through the spermaceti and squeezing out some of it that had crystallized. And Ishmael says, As I bathed my hands amongst these soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues, woven almost within the hour as I richly broke my fingers and discharged all the opulence, like fully ripe grapes, their wine. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborer's hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities, or know the slightest ill-humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the milk and sperm of kindness. So on that level, even, the novel is really enjoyable. What do you expect from a novel that is called Moby Dick? Ah. So, of course, uh, it is easy to sort of giggle about the constant use of sperm and all the homosexual undertones. And I think a lot of that is unintentional. But I think that the close male bonding is intentional, definitely. And, for example, Ishmael describes the voyage of the Pequod as a kind of honeymoon for himself and Queequeg. That was censored in the London edition, but he still put it in there. So it is still partly about such an intense closeness and such a love, as it would have been called at the time, between men, that very easily can sort of shift over into something that would have been abhorred and illegal at the time. But they're still described as something intensely beautiful in this book. I think you can also read it as this idea of finding human connection beyond, again, the limits of civilization. And that's also what makes Ahab so very alien in comparison to his crew. He never longs for that. He despises the social niceties of talking to the other captains, for example. He doesn't care about the needs or the social connections of his crew. Only thing he cares about is killing Moby Dick. That is also kind of interesting idea. Now Ahab is basically a character who's not capable of love, of feeling warm emotions for other human beings. He's all hatred and fury and revenge. We've talked a lot already about the adventure aspect of the novel and the gothicness of the novel. So all these really easily approachable and exciting things. But whenever I told somebody uh, that, that we were going to do an episode on it, they said, oh, I had to read that. Oh, it was so dull. And in fact, when our dear listener Kate suggested it, she said, yeah, it's this really interesting story. And then there's like a whole chapter on how to extract oil from a sperm whale. 
there are these digressions, you could say. There are chapters on the classification of whales. There are chapters on whale hunting, the history of whale hunting, on the physiology of whales. And all these things can be sort of difficult to read through because they don't really further the plot. But they are beautiful nonetheless. And I actually really enjoyed them. Well, I didn't enjoy them as much. Um, as I said, it's been a while, but the things I remember are obviously the more atmospheric scenes. And I think I basically skipped most of the more scientific, let's call it that, chapters. But nowadays, I think that they are a necessary part of Moby Dick. On the one hand, again, you can read them as part of the whole message, this conflict between man and nature, that Ishmael tries still to make sense of the journey of what he's doing, of going through the vast emptiness of the ocean, by applying these classifications, by talking about whales and the sea in scientific terms. So you can read that as a kind of grasping for categories that in the end is just as futile as Ahab's revenge. And on the other hand, I think it also counterbalances this notion of mystery and ominousness that we mentioned before. Moby Dick isn't just about gothic nature of this whale or of Ahab. It's also about a real life, a real industry at the time. And Melville put a lot of work into describing it, maybe not always that realistically or authentically, but at least the notion of these details of the everyday life the whalers have of the knowledge about whaling and the whales. And I think that makes for an interesting contrast that adds a special dimension to the book as well. That it's not just all about, ooh, a whale and he'll kill you all. But that there is this idea of humanity still coping, of coming up with categories and terms. And actually, maybe it's not as futile as we think it is. Maybe humanity still manages to kind of face nature. This is a book that asks big existential questions. And while I disagree with a lot of the answers or attempted answers that it gives, for example, uh, there's a great deal of religion in this, which I disagree with, but it is still very interesting to read. I think that notion of religion is an integral part of the whole thing. I mean, you can read basically Moby Dick as, as God. This larger-than-life power that you don't understand and that may very well crush you, but that still has this idea of something sublime, something incredible, something to revere and to worship. And it's no surprise that another very famous scene takes place in a church, the Whalers Church on Nantucket. And in the film versions, at least, the priest in that church, in the old version, I think, was played by Orson Welles, if I'm not entirely... No? No, it wasn't Orson Welles. Didn't Orson Welles play Ahab? No, Gregory Peck played Ahab. Oh. And in the new version, um, where Patrick Stewart plays uh, Ahab, actually the priest is played by Gregory Peck, who played Ahab in the original version. Oh, very very nice. So the priest is just a brief appearance, but nevertheless one that adds a lot of charisma and atmosphere. And I think that religious notion, even if you don't necessarily agree with a more theistic or theological reading of Moby Dick, I think it's very much in the center, this search for something that is larger than life, that can explain why you're here in this very fragile boat in the middle of the ocean. And in the end, yeah, well, it doesn't go out that well, does it? 
But aside from the sort of practical aspect of these digressions, they are also very enjoyable because they are written in such an interesting and clever way. Uh, for example, at one point, uh, he says that the act of paying is one of the worst things that the two orchard thieves have inflicted upon us. That is such a beautiful expression to call Adam and Eve the orchard thieves. Or there are these little witticisms almost. A purse without money is but a rag. Yes, that is something I can definitely identify with. Or the reason that he gives why he goes onto that whaling voyage, why he goes to sea. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. That is such a melancholic beginning to this entire huge novel. And that is so personal and so relatable as well and so touching that even if I disagree with Ishmael and I suppose with the author on many things, I can definitely relate to him with that. I still think the digressions, for me at least, are sometimes a bit too rambling. I can also say that even back when I read it, I had the idea that, yeah, he goes on about certain things, about the classification of whales, but I never had the feeling that he was actually telling the truth, that even I knew a few things about whales and that what he was talking about was sometimes just bullshit or whale shit or whatever. And that, for me at least, took something of the fun out of it. Yeah, a lot of what he says is whale shit, of course, but... That is also really funny, because it at least seems as if he really believes it. Now, of course, you could consider it kind of snobbish to laugh at a guy who is less educated than you, a guy who thinks that a whale is a fish, and who says, oh yes, I know more about whales than scientists because I've been a whaler. It is, in a way, like laughing at the mechanicals in Midsummer Night's Dream, who have great pretensions to be great artists and great lovers of literature. But I think that's okay to find that funny and to realize, oh, yeah, this is a guy who wants to seem more educated than he is. But since we both are kind of pretentious as well, maybe that would be something that could lead us to reconsider, oh, am I not like that maybe sometimes with all the things that I feign to know? Well, for me, it wasn't funny in the least. Um, for me, it was, if I noticed, mainly irritating. Isn't that kind of what we loved about Tristram Shandy? But there, that was the center of the whole novel. That was the piece de resistance, if you want. M it, make it the center of this one as well. The book belongs to you, the reader. But then we would kind of disregard the dark and symbolic power that is Moby Dick and the obsession that is not about reason or the limits of reason. It is what is beyond reason. It is about this emotional, atmospheric, not understandable idea about nature, about life. And you can, as I said, you can see the digressions as a kind of feeble attempt to come to terms with that from a rational point of view. 
But for me, it's only one side of the whole novel. And it's certainly not what is at the center. And it's certainly not what gives Moby Dick its attraction status as a classic of American literature. I just think, imagine Tristram Shandy goes to sea and has a crazy adventure. That is uh, such an intriguing thought. And definitely when I read it, I read Moby Dick in that kind of way, which might not be the way that it was intended, but... Whatever. It's the 21st century. I can do that. Exactly. And it only shows that Melville put a lot of effort in there to not just make it an adventure story or a gothic story or a, I don't know, homoerotic love story, but that there is a lot more to it and that your reading is just as valid as any other. So definitely, even if the book can be tough to read at times, especially if you're maybe 15, 14, and you're forced to read it by your... Stupid English teacher, oh, I hate him. There's so much in it. And everyone, even people who are very far away from it in their ideology, in their life circumstances, can draw a lot from this book. I think the book is almost as much a mythical creature as Moby Dick itself. And on the one hand, I think that gives it its power. And that is also why you should read it, that you can understand why this central obsession of Ahab with the whale is so intriguing and why it has become such a landmark of American literature in general. But on the other hand, I think read it also to kind of demystify it. As we said, there are lots of different aspects to the book. There is a lot of comedy in there. Just the descriptions of the characters and how the crew members interact with each other is sometimes morbidly, just generally very funny. There is more to it than just seeing it as a mythical creature, as this kind of dark, incomprehensible masterpiece. It is certainly a masterpiece, but it's also one that can be read, interpreted in many different ways, that can be dissected, and that this dissection may actually work. So you mean we can dissect this like a whale and get all the oil from it and then make something useful out of that. And then even the bits that aren't the oil, for example, the whale bone, we can turn that into very useful things like uh, hooped skirts or umbrellas. I would go even further and we could use the oil of the whale to light a lamp and to get some light into the darkness of our mind. And maybe with that lamp we can also find the way out of our own asses. Um, I'm afraid that will never happen. That is just as futile as trying to kill Moby Dick. Sorry about that. <laughs> My final point, though, why Moby Dick is basically Tristram Shandy, it is also about emasculation. It is also about cutting off dicks. And uh, at one point it is described how they turn the outer skin of a whale's member into a coat. And I just, I just noted down, dick coat, exclamation mark. If you don't want to read the entire novel, just Google that chapter. It is really good. It is, as you said, a lot about the limits of male power, especially because there aren't any women in there. No, there are no women at all. Not even I don't think even in the flashbacks there are women mentioned. And that makes the breakdown of this homosocial society on board just all the more kind of breakdown of the male phallocratic idea of, yeah, mastering nature. Wait, there are women. Where? Because whenever they spot a whale, what do they shout? There she blows. Ah. 
the whales are always coded as female. And that is just fucked up in so many more ways that the only female beings in the novel really are the ones that they hunt down and kill to extract the valuable things from them. Patrick Bateman would like it. <laughs> Probably. So I think we can agree that we both definitely recommend Moby Dick. It is a classic for a reason. You may not always like everything about it. You may not always agree with all the different aspects. But in its status and in its way of bringing these different aspects together and managing to portray the contrast between civilization, humanity on the one hand, and nature and its incomprehensibility on the other hand, it's, it's maybe without any peers. But suppose that you have read Moby Dick and you're right now cursing us and saying, no, I will never, never, never read that again. What else can you read? I would like to recommend just a straightforward adventure story. One that I actually had to stop reading when I was a child because it was too scary. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Not a surprising choice. It is the classic of the genre, but it really is the classic of the genre for a reason. It is an excellent book. It is very well written, it is very exciting, and it also gives you an impression of seafaring and exciting things happening, but with less of all the existential stuff. So while Jonas is recommending a maybe simpler adventure story, I go in a different direction and would like to recommend a postmodern novel that's maybe even more up its own ass than Tristram Shandy. It's a fantasy novel at the same time, namely The Scar by China Mirville. China Mirville is famous for giving fantasy and other genres a kind of different look for subverting expectations. And the scar is no difference. It is about a city on the sea, a city that is drawn by many, many ships. And it takes up the same ideas as with Moby Dick and as with Treasure Island, the seafaring adventure story. But it also takes place in a very strange world where these ideas these genre conventions are turned topsy-turvy. Why I would also like to recommend it with regard to Moby Dick is it's also a story about obsession. About obsession with nature, about obsession with power, about obsession with civilization and the contrast between civilization and nature and how both of them are basically no ideal solution. So in a way, it takes up the very same themes and topics as Moby Dick, but it also has much more fun ideas and is maybe less boring with no descriptions of different ways of dealing with whale meat. So I recommend The Scar by China Meadow. So go and read Moby Dick. But what are we going to read for our next episode, Christian? Well... We read an American classic, and the next book promises to be one in future years as well. It's even titled Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Until then, recommend us to your friends. Recommend us to your whaling companies. You can also rate us on iTunes. You can find us on our homepage, outsideofadogcast.com. And you can write emails to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com and... You can, of course, suggest something that we should read, as Kate has done. So thank you once again to Kate for this suggestion. So for now, goodbye, and don't let the great white whale bite your leg off. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. This week's...
weeks. We should just make this a weekly podcast just so that doesn't happen anymore.